It's February 8th. Since our last episode, to borrow a turn of phrase from Shakespeare, 14 days have steeped themselves in night. Today, the sun rises at 7.16 a.m. and sets at 6.01 p.m. That's 10 hours and 45 minutes of daylight, 24 minutes more since episode 9. The dawn chorus of birds is beginning to strengthen as migration patterns start to reverse and nesting season in our area draws closer, all dictated by the sun's return. Life ever returning. The season of suspension is giving way to change once again. I'm Claire Houle, a writer and instructional designer at the Center for Teaching Excellence at Midlands Technical College here in Columbia, South Carolina. Join me as we once again branch out, following the roots and filaments of teaching and connection here at the college. What is the place we allow for failure in higher education? How could we better understand and engage with failure in our work with students and in our professional lives? Where do we put our educational grief? This is Instructional Ecology. Welcome back. This episode is another chance for us to consider the emotion around failure, which is something that most of our instructional community acknowledges is something that higher education would really rather avoid dealing with. Here's the guiding question. What is the place for loss and grief in higher education? So in keeping with the work of our season, Let's face it. Let's continue walking carefully through this dark place, trusting each other to provide illumination, even if it's only for the smallest of moments. I think a lot about something the writer E.L. Doctorow said about writing a novel. He said, it's like driving a car at night. You can only see what's in your headlights, but you can make the whole journey that way. I've often used this simile in teaching, and it feels true of many times in life as well. As we draw closer to the end of the failure season, narratively, we should be talking about return. But the return is the trick, isn't it? To return from the underworld in mythology, you have to have the golden bough, the magical talisman that allows you to return to life alive and not as a shade, a ghost. We all want to survive our failures and griefs and return to our lives. How can we make that more possible for our students? Let's continue to face our collective discomfort and uncertainty. Today, we'll hear the voices of three guests to see what light they might bring. Loss and grief in higher education. To set our stage, haha, she's a theater professor, please clap. Here's Elena Martinez Vidal, who told us a failure story in episode three. When I put our guiding question to her, she seemed to summarize everyone's response every time I've asked. Here we are talking earlier in the season. So I'm wondering, what is the place of grief and loss in higher education? You know, that's such such a deep question, Claire. It is so deep. I think that we do not actually deal with that. Um, For the most part, you know, a student withdraws because they're not doing well and it's like, oh, bye. All right, let's stay with that. I became interested in the significance of loss when a person fails an important assignment, but even more when a student fails an essential course or out of a program. 
I went back to political science professor T.J. Kimmel, who spoke to us about failure in our original episode in season three. He's been thinking about these issues like Will Galston ever since, and I returned to him on the topic of loss. As T.J. has told us and tells his students, he failed out of his first attempt at his bachelor's degree. I asked him to return to that moment in his memory. What was it like? What was he losing? And I always appreciate how specific TJ's recollection is. You'll hear a vivid sense memory of space and place that the emotion of that time has engraved into his mind. This kind of snapshot, lit by the stark light of heartbreak, is the kind of thing many of our students carry. A memory comes back to me quite clearly in my head from towards the end of the semester where we were long past the point of recovery. And I can still see sitting in my like bedroom uh, on the computer, looking at an email from a professor. And I had asked for like an opportunity to make something, you know, the, the kind of thing that every faculty member is familiar with, right? I, I have been on both sides of those emails. Um, and I remember just feeling like such a colossal failure right then, right? So the semester's not over, but I know it's over. And that any opportunity that I had to um, to try to salvage it was done, like long done, like that ship had sailed a long time ago. Um, so right, right then, so that would have been April, uh, sometime in April, 2004. Um, yeah, terrible at that, at that moment. So to leave an institution, um, what is being lost? I think it's worth it to to just uh, pause a moment and say, you know, it seems obvious like an opportunity, but I, I'm guessing that there's kind of a few more things that that a person is losing when they leave. What, what did you, maybe at the time or looking back, what was lost? I remember distinctly feeling like I'd lost an identity as a college student. Because if you're that age, so I'd have been like 21, 22, um, if you're that age and you're a college student and you're working in a job that you don't like, you know, you're just, that's the price to do the other thing. But if you're that age and you're working in a job you don't like, you're a loser. At least that's the way I perceived it, right? So, you know, that just stacks failure on top of failure on top of failure. Um, uh, yeah, it was bad. Very unpleasant experience. This compressing density, this stratification of the sense of loss. And TJ changes the word from loss to a much more savage one, loser. There's a big difference between losing something and being a loser. Perhaps we should start to ask how our students encounter educational loss. Are they feeling loss? Or are they transforming that into a painful identity, like loser? I think that question could be a very useful diagnostic tool, because if we see this change taking place, we could intervene before the poison spreads. And the people who often intervene the most closely are our counseling services staff. I've returned to Centrelle Leggett, an MTC counselor and therapist, for a second conversation focused in on grief and loss. 
Because educational loss recalls for me Centrell's own experience when she realized as a young woman and college student that law school was not in her future, despite long cherished dreams. I asked her about the connection between loss and grief. Here she is, illuminating that connection for us. So when people think about grief and loss, they tend to think about a person who has passed away, but not realizing that there are other um, forms of grief. And so um, when I took a look at, I'll just go into a little bit of kind of like my own story a little bit and how I, I looked at realized that I was grieving and and had to uh, work my way through it, I had a view of becoming an attorney. And so I thought that that is what I wanted to do. And I, I had what I thought were the right reasons for becoming an attorney. You know, I wanted to be successful and I wanted to be financially stable and I wanted to have a job where I felt that I could help people. And, you know, I can be a defense attorney and I can really help people. And then when I realized that that path was just not going to work. I found myself feeling like a failure. Um, And so the grieving part of it was I have lost this, I guess, a part of what I thought my reality was going to be. So I had to grieve the fact that this picture that I had of myself, you know, being um, in a courtroom, right? Like that's lost. That's not going to happen. I'm not going to law school. That's not going to happen. And so it was a loss. Um, overwhelming for sure. Sometimes, you know, can be debilitating. Grief, it, it, it comes and goes, right? So, you know, one moment you're able to deal with it. And then other moments, you know, as I was seeing maybe some other people living out those dreams and going to law school and I started feeling things all over again. So it, it definitely is a very real experience. Um, and I'm glad that you brought that up because I don't think oftentimes people would connect the the parallels between grieving and academic failure. If this is a new connection, let's begin to fill out a much more detailed picture of the experience through this lens. I asked Centrell to list what students are losing when they fail out of a program or out of college altogether. So there are so many things that the students are actually losing. Um, You know, some of the things that come to my mind are, you know, we know that they are, you know, losing what has been their norm, obviously, for a while. The fact they are going to classes. Um, Some of them are losing friend groups and like support circles, job prospects. And, you know, financial aid. So, I mean, there's so many different things that students are really losing. But one of the things that we don't really think about, um, I don't think as much, I know I haven't, is that you really are losing or a part of your identity, you know, because you do identify um, as a student, but you're also losing like a dream you know, your whole vision of what your future is. When we lose some a person to death or other circumstances, we often grieve. Could you explain to us how loss and grief are connected from your perspective uh, as a therapist? So I never really thought about it much um, 
until we started having these conversations, you know, I always knew that it was a loss, but we do grieve, you know, all sorts of losses, not just death. And so again, when you are, um, say losing a friend, you know, that is a loss. You lose your friend group. That is a significant loss. Um, and so that is something that an individual would grieve. Um, and like I said, I've, I've seen it. And when I think back to my own personal failure, um, when I found myself in that very same seat that a lot of our students are in and I reflected on it, um, I realized how I was grieving. You know, when you lose something and lose something that is significant, it is definitely to be expected that you would begin to grieve that loss. That's a much deeper picture of loss than our party line. When we say at the college, you can get anywhere from here, we're focusing on ultimate student goals, where they want to get. So we understand that failing out can mean the loss or long delay of specific career pathways. But Centrale and TJ point us to a much more holistic sense of loss from failure. The loss of community that includes class meetings, friends, mentors, human contact, an intellectual life, a community of practice, network and connection, a sense of belonging. It involves the loss of routine. There's no longer a third place to go to other than home or work. No more class meetings in person or online. No more homework time focusing on subjects you care about. And there's the loss of identity. You are no longer a college student. You are no longer a student of the subject or discipline you feel yourself to be part of. That identity feels like it's been taken away from you. So, who are you now without that? Uncertainty has now replaced planning and a path. And that's the loss of a dream. This is where grief arrives. I asked Centrell to define grief for us. The textbook definition of grief is a deep sorrow that is caused by a loss. That is grief. So in a nutshell, grief is that that feeling of that emotion that is caused by a loss. But to me, grief is a process. You know, it's 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 a process. Um, grief is something that is going to look different for everybody. And I think that's something that we have to be aware of, too. Um, you know, that how I may grieve, you know, how I may present that grief or how it feels to me is going to be totally different from somebody else. And so therefore what I need in that, in my process on my journey is going to be different as well. So to me, grief is an individualized, um, process that is based around the fact that you are experiencing and have suffered a significant loss. So when a student loses a dream of who they are or who they will be, the cavern can open up at their feet. 
A dream is a living thing. You know, we always, the first thing we think of with grief is the death of a living person. But a dream is a living thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, do do we grieve dreams? You know, I think we do. What does that look like, do you think? To grieve a dream. Um, so when I think back to when I dealt with this, um, when I was in college and, you know, I always had this, this dream or this vision of being an attorney. And so I saw myself, like I could vividly see myself in a courtroom. And I thought that that is what, you know, life was going to look like. And once I realized that my life had taken a different turn and I had to give that up, it felt very much similar to, you know, losing some other, you know, losing people, losing friends, you know, those losses that we often think about. And so, I mean, that dream, like you said, is a living thing. It's something that you, you know, think about often. And um, so just, you know, knowing that your future now looks differently from how you've always envisioned it, it's like, you know, having to realize that your life as you saw it has to change and you have to embrace a new normal. And the tricky part is that we don't, you you can't instantly know what the new normal is. And I think as you were talking, I realized that when a person is grieving a future, and so it might be a future with a person, either because they have died or there is a divorce or they have been, you know, no longer there for some way. If they're grieving a dream, I thought that the future would look like this. I would be doing these things. We're plunged into uncertainty. And living with uncertainty is a very distinctive skill set. And I don't know that it's one that we teach ourselves in our culture. Um, we're, we're, we are people of, we prefer certainty. We like to have paths, right? I mean, we, we literally have guided pathways here at the college. We like to have uh, expectations of what tomorrow will bring, what the next year will bring, what many more years will bring. And mm-hmm. when suddenly a dream or goal or future is taken away, there's an emptiness for a while mm-hmm. before we figure out what to replace that plan with. Do you have any perspective or wisdom on living in that space, that gap between one future and the next. I truly believe that just having a positive mindset overall helps. I think one of the things that we should always keep in mind is that nothing is for certain. (laughs) And having the ability to be able to adjust. um, Because, I mean, things, again, things just may not always go according to that plan. Um, but just again, being positive and just knowing that things still are going to work out for you. It just may not look differently. And the fact that the dream had to have been created by you, right? It's your dream. So if you created that dream, create another one, create a new dream and not to make it sound as if it's just, (laughs) you know, not to diminish it, but to know that you can create a new dream. So I think about, you know, just from like for myself, I 
the attorney that didn't work. And so I started thinking, huh, okay, let me come up with something else. What else would I like to do? What else would be fulfilling? And I absolutely love the journey that I'm on now. And the journey that I'm on now actually was sparked by the fact that what I did before didn't work. <laughs> you know, so to know again, it's it's not over. You know, sometimes we just have to change direction, but to know that things are are going to be okay. And again, create a new dream. Like you are, you're in the driver's seat <laughs> when it comes to your life, your journey. And to know again that it, it will be okay. Change in direction is okay. Change is okay. If we accept that educational grief is indeed real for many students, then let's look at that more closely. And let's recall that plenty of students can be disappointed by failure or a change in plans, yet do not experience profound sorrow. But many others do. And this large population are the ones we're talking about today. At an open enrollment college, this is a crucial issue we cannot turn away from. Centrell offered a great observation from her vantage point as a therapist about student behaviors during and after failure when we look together through the lens of grief. Many of us are familiar with the five stages of grief, which can be a useful tool when seeking to understand how people respond to profound loss. I asked her, if we accept that some students are in grief over their failures, how might the five stages of grief look in an educational setting? Here's the insight she has for us. I did a lot of thought recently, like with the five stages of grief that a lot of people are familiar with, um, that we often hear about. And I really just started thinking about what I've seen in students. And like I said, what I've seen, um, what I can remember with myself, you know, initially it is it's like that denial, <laughs> that first stage is like, okay, like this, this can't be happening. Surely I'm not going to be, you know, really on suspension. There has to be another way. Um, even before that with the probation step, it's like, okay, you know, I know that my grades are not really where they need to be, but oh, this is not really happening. You know, that's not something that most likely we've dealt with before, especially if you're coming right out of K-12 because it just doesn't happen that way. Um, you know, there are always other chances and, um, you know, just other opportunities to to get your grades where they need to be. And, you know, even if not, you're not asked to sit out of school for a while. And so, um, you know, just that denial that, oh, this is not really going to happen. And then when it does happen, that second stage, anger, <laughs> Um, oftentimes it's misplaced, <laughs> you know, I can remember myself being upset with the professor Well, they didn't really have to give me that grade or, you know, they could have at least given me two points. You know, you can give me the two points, um, the bargaining, <laughs> that third step, you know, you are desperate and grabbing at straws. Um, I can remember a phone call that I got recently and a student was transferred to me from another department. Um, and this student was just grasping at straws and they had called all the, you know, these different offices. And um, when the student got to me, they were just really, really upset and trying to figure out, well, you know, what if I do this? Or, you know, is there not somebody I can talk to? And, you know, well, it's really not my fault because of this or that. 
Um, and so, and I, I know you didn't ask this question, but it it definitely leads me into what we've talked about before, just how we, you know, can be supportive and understanding during those moments. Because with this individual, once upon a time, I may have not really been empathetic and, you know, I may have looked at it as, oh, this person's just being difficult. But instead, I said, this person is really, you know, in crisis mode. Um, and so that that bargaining step, um, you know, that I saw, uh, you know, once the students started to calm down and realize that this really is what's going to happen, um, you know, of course, and you don't always see all these steps, but, you know, student got really, really sad, you know, crying and just kind of sharing some other things that had happened in their life. And um, we finally got to that final step of, okay, I need to accept what's going on. And then, you know, we talked about, let's see how I can support you. Let's see, you know, what other departments can support you and what we can do, um, you know, so that you can get back on track and be successful. Because like we discussed before, this is not the end. <laughs> this is just a, a little stumbling block. What does this open up for you as you think about your work with students at the college? Can these five ways of responding to grief be useful to better understand the choices students make? Can they be used to better guide our response? Thinking about how students in grief are distracted and perhaps in denial or depression, I asked T.J. Kimmel about that moment when he got his letter saying he had failed out of his institution. And here is what he said. You know, I don't know. I don't know that I even read it because, <laughs> you know, I I'd logged it. You know, I'd stopped checking my student email. They might have sent a letter to the to our house. I don't know. Um, I don't remember that at all. I, 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 you know, by that I was I, let me say I assumed nothing good in the letter. Right. Like whether they might have been like, oh, we'd love to have you back. Here's a way to do it. I, I doubt it seriously. But um you know, my assumption was that it would be nothing pleasant to read. I was like, well, I already went through it. Do I have to read about it too? I bring that up because um, Diane Carr was musing on how how we, we might frame, you know, suspension, which is a pause. And in fact, if we think about that word suspension, it literally is, you know, to suspend something, to freeze it in time. Very interesting what you sort of like, you know, get into that that connotation. And she was musing and said, she hadn't looked at the letter in a while, and she thought, you know, I wonder, you know, suspension to her is a gift of time. And she thought, I, I bet we don't really frame it that way. But when I, I offered that to you, you said, you know, you you actually did that that way. You took your pause as a gift of time. I would love to hear about how you accepted that gift, how you made it into something meaningful before you returned to your bachelor's degree and then all of your subsequent higher ed degrees? Well, it didn't start that way for sure, right? Um, it felt awful for a while. Um, and then over time, I started to appreciate, you know, having less pressure, less time pressures, less, you know, the kind of pressures that come with the semester, right? Being, a, being in academia is really nice because the rhythms of the calendar year are nice once you get used to them and you can sort of anticipate what's happening. Um, but it also comes with some serious drawbacks, including, you know, serious deadlines that 
that are high pressure for everybody involved, students, faculty, staff, everybody at the college is heavily, heavily impacted by those. And so getting outside of that, having been through it at a college, um, I started to, to appreciate that lack of stress, the lack of pressure more. And was it was allowing me time to sort of like those um, Persephone days, right? The roots are growing quietly underground. It looks like nothing's happening above ground. Um, if you look dead, according to, you know, uh, just looking at it from the top, but in a lot, in reality, there's a lot happening underneath. And so, I mean, you know, that, that played out for me well over a year um, because I left NC State in the spring of 2004 and I didn't return to Wake Tech Community College until January 2007. So, so the 2004 to 2005, 2005, so two and a half years. Um, and it wasn't until 2006 that I was really ready to um, to go again. Uh, you know, probably also my dad died in January 2006. So you don't have to leave that sad part in there if you don't want to. But, um, uh, you know, losing somebody like that also has an impact on like, what do you want to do with your life? What do you want to what do you want to be doing? Um, is this really it? Right. You've had this time to sort of. Um, think about what you want to do, think about what you really, what you're enjoying um, and feel in a much stronger position to launch again, at least into academia, right? I mean, I was launched into adulthood. I was, I was on my own, uh, you know, paying my bills mostly at the time. <laughs> and, but you know, that the next step, um, I was finally ready again to do. You said also it gave you a mindset shift. You 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 went from one place to the next. How did that go for you? So the, the yeah the Persephone days are very useful once you kind of get into it and appreciate it. Right, that it's an opportunity. It's one of those magic moments that happens in life where you can kind of step back and kind of reflect. And I've had a few like that, you know, over life. Um, uh, and it's usually after something really jarring and awful has happened where you've been dislodged from a path you thought you wanted to go on and then you get some peace after that and during that peace you can sort of look back well what what did, where did I make mistakes what what did I do right and you know one of the things that I realized as a student was that um, the attitude I brought to class was one I would never ever bring to work right like I always showed up on time I, I, I showed up for work every day I did everything I was supposed to. And I was like, literally, if I just take that skill set and apply it to my work as a student, I would probably excel dramatically. And I did. I made the dean's list every semester after I came back. That's really all I did. I just took the skill set I already had and applied it in a different place. This reminds me of the revelation Dr. Rames had in his first English class, that he would have better success if he applied the techniques and skills he was being taught to his writing and it worked for him. But also, TJ leaned into that sense of season. He ended up using his enforced break as a time of true reset, returning on his own terms and when he was ready. He made a choice based on his own desire and focus, not because of any external expectations. Here, I ask him about his return. You mentioned too that, um, you know, that with the death of your father, 
that ended up galvanizing you um, and saying that you really, you really wanted to, to, like you said, what you're doing, what are you doing with your life? And you were on a um, work path that could have earned you a comfortable living. And, but that wasn't for you. It, it didn't really have meaning to you. So what is, what did you find about the importance of choosing a path that actually is more than simply a paycheck? What did that do for you? It's an interesting thing how death or the threat of death can focus the human mind, right? Um, I think a lot of us are familiar with that from the pandemic. That's still fresh enough on everybody's mind, although it will fade because these things do. Um, it really sort of reinforces what's actually important. And it reminds us in a way that humans are very good at forgetting that we are it's finite, right? You only get so much and we don't know how much. You know, I sort of looked at my options, right? I was working in retail, but in every retail job I had pretty much, I had the path into like upper management laid out before me, was asked repeatedly in different companies to take that path. And you can make a lot of money doing that as a store manager, as a district manager up in the corporate offices. I mean, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. Um, but I didn't find the work to be terribly fulfilling or meaningful. And I wanted something that felt more important to me, right? And that's going to be different for everybody. Um, but being, a, you know, I'm a political scientist. So the thing that felt important to me was politics, government. When I came back to undergrad, I I had sort of like this distant thought of like, oh, it'd be cool to be a college professor, but doing it sounds like too much work. So, and that's like so far in advance, I can't even pick that as a goal. Right now, I just need to focus on getting back into classes. But yeah, I wanted I wanted to do something that had at least, you know, to me, because it is such a personal thing, um, meaning. So I asked him about the end of grief and the part it plays in a return and the part of acceptance. How is acceptance part important in that process of recovery from failure and then reattempt? Oh, it's it's absolutely essential. You cannot overcome it without it. You have to accept the reality that you set a goal and did not achieve it. In other words, you failed, right? Um, because if you don't accept that, you can't really look at it honestly and say what worked and what didn't. And until you do that, if you do have success in the future, it's an accident, right? When you look at it honestly and you say, well, this worked and this didn't, um, and then you succeed, it's a much like lower likelihood that it's just an accident. You did that, you worked for it, right? You, you, you did it yourself. So that sounds like you were kind of, you were primed. Um, when you returned, you know, you took a few years off and some people, when they return, feel a bit rusty or uncertain. Uh, you didn't so much to talk about, okay, you took a gift of time. You made it meaningful after, you know, some recovery. Um, what was it like? Um, what did you discover you were ready for? Oh, I was ready to do it. I was ready to do my assignments. I was ready to keep up with them. I had a calendar that I actually used this time. Uh, and thought about it when I wasn't in it, right? And so I would remember, oh yeah, I got to do this and I got to do this. And I, you know, and when I first went back that first semester, I took two classes at Wake Tech and I was working full-time for that big box retailer. And like balancing that was tricky, but not impossible. 
Right. And so, yeah, I mean, you do have to make some choices, right? It does cost your social life some and you have to do that. But on the whole, I was like ready, ready, ready to do it. Very excited to do it. Thrilled to be back. Couldn't be happier to be back in it um, and excited about the opportunity to succeed again. And you and, and say a little bit more about how you actually used the skills that you had sort of ignored um, the first go around. Like what I, that was a, ended up being a revelation. It seems obvious, but it was not until this moment. Oh, yeah. The biggest one, you know, going to class every day. <laughs> so, like, I, you know, I was very proud of myself only when I was like legitimately quite sick did I miss a class like there was like. No excuse whatsoever was any good except for like, I'm like actually quite ill um, to miss class. I mean, I, I, which is exactly how I was with work, right? I, I would always show up and I was like, well, that's the exact same skill set. And, you know, I would keep up with the deadlines because that's what I would do at work, right? If you don't, you get fired, right? If you don't in college, you fail out, right? There are real repercussions to those things. Um, yeah, and so taking that good work ethic I had and applying it here worked very nicely. This for TJ was the gift of time. Those years of labor and recovery, earning a good living, working his way up, reflecting on what had happened, and planning for the future. He made meaning and practice from all he learned of his experience and himself. To find greater agency, to find worth and meaning in the tasks and habits of mind and behaviors that led to success in higher education. And now he is a PhD and a professor. The hope is that this direct look at failure might show us some new ways of doing things at the college. Not additional work, because I'm aware of the teaching and workloads of faculty and staff at the college. The question is, what can we look for with new eyes and what can we do differently instead of what we've always done that doesn't seem to be useful? Here's my question to TJ. So thinking about practice at the college, um, you know, we've been talking about this since um, last last spring um, and you've had you know, a little more time to sort of mull it over than perhaps someone I'm just sort of coming at, you know, cold. What do you think we could do at the college to better help students acknowledge and address that loss in higher education when they're having that struggle of, oh my gosh, this is not working out. And they're in a position to make some you know, choices that help them and some choices that are, are, are not constructive. What Have you come up with anything that you think might be some, some practices that might be possibilities? You know, I would, it's something I've been trying since I started and was thinking about all that, you know, years and years ago, the different things and different things seem to have varying degrees of success. Um, we could be open to mentoring students, even when they're not enrolled, which I've told my students I have. I've talked to some students, some when they weren't enrolled at the college, um, you know, and where they had failed out and wanted to return. Um, and try to encourage them and give them the same sort of like work skill lessons that I applied, right? Like it was so obvious in retrospect um, to encourage them to take their time. Like, you know, I know that flies against a lot of the very large pressures that come from education departments, the U.S. education department, the state education departments about like faster time to graduation, right? Um, uh, but the truth is that students in that situation, they need some time, as much time as it's going to take. 
for them, right? All kinds of things can happen to you while you're going through that. I was pretty fortunate that, you know, relatively few things went wrong, but, you know, uh, if you have a family, right, that could be, that could take years beyond to get there, right? Um, if you have children to take care of or, yeah, I mean, life can be very, very complicated. So they need the time to do it on, to get there. Right. Um, but it would have been nice if I had been going through that, if I had known that I could go talk to somebody at NC State or Wake Tech and been like, hey, this is what I'm going through. This is what I'm thinking. What is your advice? Right. Um, I mean, they probably did. Right. But you feel like at the time I, I would have felt like that it was a waste of their time to talk to me. Right. That I that I really wasn't there yet anyway. I'm like, yeah, well, you know, when I'm ready, I'll chat. Um, but, you know, just uh, some way to offer them like a sounding board to think about, well, what worked and what didn't. And maybe in that letter that they send out, assuming anybody actually reads it, which I wouldn't bet a lot of money on. But just in case, you know, some instructions that say, hey, we'd love to have you come back. Right. As you, while you work through things like please return, it would you know, we don't consider this the end of the road for you. This can just be like a you're you're getting off for a little bit and you'll come back. And how about Centrell's perspective and how looking at student failure through the lens of grief might change our perception and response? We see a lot of different behaviors from students uh, and we don't always know exactly what's going on, right? Because, you know, people have very complex private lives and many things could, could cause people to do things. But you had that moment where you were a little puzzled, like, okay, why is this person calling all over the college and Oh, wow. You know, this is uh, quite, quite, quite something I'm seeing. And then you had that that moment of saying, you know, I, I don't think that the student is is trying to be difficult. I think that the student is in grief. And therefore, I'm going to to approach this kind of conversation a little differently. So that would lead me to ask um, a great question, which is so what? <laughs> if we begin to think about students being in educational grief, what are some of your early thoughts about how we might work with them differently when we change the lens to this person is grieving? So I think that I think that when we look at it that way, and I believe on the earlier podcast, I talked about a, a course um, that I used to teach nonviolent crisis intervention, how we, um, you know, dealt with crises. And so I now look at things from that lens. <laughs> and I think that um, we're able to see that somebody really is dealing with something that is difficult and what I consider to be crisis mode. I think it helps us to change our perspective and we're not looking at it for one from a place of being judgmental. Um, and Something that came to me just this morning as I was thinking about this podcast is that um, a lot of students think about particularly the suspension process as something that's punitive. And it may come across as, you know, punitive, like, hey, if you don't do well, you're going to get kicked out. Um, you know, you that's it. You're going to be kicked out of the college. Um, but I think that even if we're having those conversations and when we're having those conversations, even if we talk to the students about the fact that it's not a punishment, you know, that 
this is for you. This could be a much needed break, you know, a time for you to take a pause. You know, it doesn't mean that you're not meant for school. Some of the things that we talked about, it doesn't mean that you're not meant for school. It perhaps could really just mean that right now, you know, this is not something that you were able to to handle. And so taking this semester off, taking that time off would allow you to take some things off your plate, um, regroup, come up with a plan. If there's some skills that maybe you need, um, a lot of times I see students often talking about struggling with time management and study skills. Those seem to be, you know, two of the biggest things that I've seen when they talk about skill deficits, you know, not necessarily when it comes to the content, but just I don't really know how to study or I have so much on my plate. I don't know how to prioritize it. And so looking at it as this is not punitive. Um, this is not, again, the end. And let's see what we can do to help you in this time period. You know, once we've gotten to this point, what can we do to help? How can we support you so that when you return, you are able to be successful? So it sounds like to me that this is becoming an issue of framing. Um, you know, we had Diane Carr mentioning in her episode that she sort of sees suspension as a gift of time. And oh. then she said, I'm not not sure that we put it that way in the letter. Um, and when I talked to TJ Kimmel, who, you know, failed out of his first attempt at undergraduate, I said, what do you know what your letter said? And he said, I, I don't think I even read it. He said, as a student that was failing out, I thought, well, everything is already so terrible. I don't see why I should look at it again. Mm -hmm. And that makes me wonder, well, how could we not just in the letter, but in other places? frame failure and or you know lack of success in different ways in different places that uh change the quality of the experience so that it makes it more possible either to persist or to return at the right time because i recall you saying in in your first episode um if you have problems with childcare, if you are depressed um, if uh you don't have study skills you can take time off and come back and if those those issues haven't been addressed, then things will simply repeat themselves. So how, how do you think, I mean, and, you know, again, and early in your thinking, we as a college might begin to reframe failure or time away from the college. Hmm. That's a, a really good question. Um, <laughs> Love to because, ask those good questions. Yeah, because what you just said, you know, <laughs> talking about, listen, you know, with that colleague, like, I can remember when I got my letter, I was really just like, I didn't read it in great detail. I just wanted to know <laughs> when I can come back, you know, like I didn't read anything else. Um, I can remember getting a letter about being on academic probation and I didn't read it in great detail. So it could have had some really important things in there. It could have talked about um you know, maybe someone to call for support or, you know, perhaps you want to lessen your course load or, you know, reach out to your advisor, anything. But just getting that letter to me, um, it was easier to shut it out <laughs> because it felt unpleasant. And so it didn't, I don't know, it just didn't resonate it to me that this is, you know, um, something that could be helpful. And like you said, it just, you know, felt as if 
it's over, you know, kind of why try, <laughs> you know, once I got that letter discussing suspension. So I think that I would love to be honest. Um, I think the missing piece is really for us to talk to some students who are in that place right now, you know, to see what they are really feeling. Um, I would love to hear their perspective and see how they, you know, or what they feel that they need, you know, because we know a lot of, like I said, I get to hear um, a lot of kind of what's going on in their lives and maybe what led them there. But I think the missing piece is knowing what do you need? You know, what do you need from us from a college perspective? Like, truly, how can we help you besides offering tutoring? To ask the people most affected by a decision. Uh, that, that gathers a certain kind of information not available even from experts. Um, because I, I, I teed up a question here to ask you as an expert. Um, and uh, uh, I'm shamed because... I chose not to have students on this particular season, which I don't think was a wrong or bad decision um, at this stage. But you remind us that we're talking here in early days, but there will be a point where this will become incoherent and abstract if we don't actually talk to the folk that are most affected and the ones that are the main characters here. I think sometimes we have a little bit of trouble about who, who is really at the center here? So let me ask you, though, in your from your perspective as someone who thinks so much about communicating with people in very difficult times, um, we all know that terrible distraction when you are distressed or in grief, right? And like you said, it's hard to focus on things. You know, if you get like this detailed letter and you're like, okay, well, this might have help in it, but I, I just I just need to know the date. I, I I can't I can't get into it now. So what are some good principles that you find in general? about communicating with someone who is in a state of extreme distraction um, and distress because of loss, shame, failure, this, this cluster of um, experiences and emotions that we've been talking about this season? I think we need to be very much aware of what does this person need. So I think initially, because I'm just a person who, for lack of better words, like I get in my own head. <laughs> and so during those moments, I will say to myself, okay, Centrell, like, what does this person need from me right now? What do they need? Um, and so some of the, the things that I typically do when I'm handling somebody in a situation like that, I'm very aware of the environment, um, you know, our surroundings. So allowing this person to be in a safe space. You know, making sure that there is um, some privacy there for sure. Um, making sure that I, I uh, that they know that I communicate to them that I'm fully present for you. You know, I'm not distracted. So I make sure I give that person my undivided attention, even though I'm a talker by nature. <laughs> I'm very much aware of the need at that moment um, to listen more than I talk, you know, so to make sure that I'm actively listening um, to what that individual is saying 
And then to really communicate to them with my nonverbals as well as my verbal communication that I am here for you. What do you need? How can I help you? Um, so in those moments, to me, those are some of the, the best practices. Again, just making sure that you are communicating to that person um, that you genuinely care about what is going on with them, um, that you are there to support them, you know, through through this this process. And, um, you know, I think those are some of the, the best practices that I can think of. So where are we at this moment as we part after conversation? Here's what I asked Centrell. So, uh, you know, we, you and I have been thinking together about this for a few months now. You've got a little bit of time in it, not not enough, of course. But um, as you've gotten a little further in your thinking, how could grief be part of failure in higher education, given your your evolving thinking on it? I think that it is something that more often than not is going to be experienced by failures. And I think we have to again, define what failures are, (laughs) you know, realize that what is looked at, because again, even with, you know, failure, there's no overall, I guess, I'm not going to say textbook definition, but, you know, what a failure for me is may be different from a failure for you. And I think sometimes we may have a tendency to, um, like, again, I, I met with one young lady and she, I want to say had like, um, she had gotten a B on something. And so I think initially somebody's response may be like, you got a B, you know, what's the big deal? <laughs> and kind of shut her down. But in talking to her, that B for her felt like a failure, especially because she needed an A you know, on this specific assignment to get to where she needed to be. And so just, again, not being judgmental, being really, you know, empathetic, um, but also still realizing that once an individual does experience a failure, and if that failure results in a loss, that the grieving process is something that is the inevitable. And so just, again, reframing our thinking and knowing that grief does not just mean that you lost a loved one, but again, that you have, you know, had, you know, in the educational setting again. And it's also, you know, realizing, too, that in higher ed, you're not expected to fail. You know, not that you're ever expected to fail, but it's different when you are, you know, in third or fourth grade, you know, you fail a test or you don't do so well and your teacher's looking at you. It's okay, And you're going to do better next time. They're really empathetic and, you know, positive about it. But when you are in college, it's expected that, look, you're a scholar. You got this. And so if you fail it is your fault. <laughs> and so oftentimes that's when the whole attitude shifts and, you know, those supports are not there. And then it causes, it's like a chain reaction. It causes that 
you know, embarrassment. And I think more the questions of, you know, am I good enough? Is this for me? And I think it just has that domino effect. And so definitely that is, again, um, going to result, in my opinion, in the grief, because you may be, you know, grieving that, that dream, you know, losing the dream that you had, or, you know, questioning your identity and your self-worth at that point. I wonder, so as, as we focus on grief in this episode, and, and I feel like this whole episode is just sort of notes towards, you know, we're not, again, we're not, we're not, this is not a season of arrival. This is a season of journey. And I mean that literally in terms of the podcast and also the experience we're talking about, you know, there's um, failure is both an arrival and a departure simultaneously. Uh, you come to the end of something and then you launch off on something else you don't even know. So I'm wondering, as we think about grief, you know, because you and I are sort of moving into this new diagnosis of educational grief, um, which is like other kinds of grief, but is distinctive, right? It's touched off specifically by education, a reversal of fortune in the context of education. And I'm wondering, when you think about it from your very you know, particular perspective as, as a counselor here at the college, how could we tell if a student's experiencing grief over failure in education? Because as you know, some people do experience educational failure and they don't like it. It's not a good experience, but they don't end up in grief over it. Not everyone does, but some definitely do. I wonder, what do you think a diagnosis of educational grief could be? So if grief is in fact defined as a deep sorrow that is caused by a loss, then I think that you would recognize or see that that student is, I mean, their affect would be different. You know, they they probably are going to be, um, my best guess is, a little more, you know, withdrawn, um, you know, the normal. Um, I mean, we definitely see it um, just, I would just say, uh, you know, just in noticing a difference in those students. So whether it is their grades are declining, their attendance is changing. If you get to know your students, their appearance may be different. Elena, who we spoke to earlier in the episode, has already begun small gestures towards reaching out to students in this circumstance, and she credits the pandemic with a change in practice. I can't say I've done this my entire academic career. So I think the pandemic made me way more sensitive to these things. Also studying DEI and learning a lot about just people and everybody being just themselves. And I actually now reach out to students when they withdraw and I just ask them if they're all right, um, what, what happened. I mean, sometimes I know what happened because they've told me, but sometimes I don't. Uh, and sometimes they answer back and sometimes they don't. But when they do answer back, they're like, thank you for asking. And there's usually a really good reason. You know, their mom got sick. Uh, they got sick. Work life just was too much and they just couldn't deal. Work suddenly became 60-hour weeks. 
and they appreciate at least being asked. I, I cannot, I cannot imagine. I personally cannot imagine the loss that someone feels after maybe trying something and it just doesn't go well. And yes, there's going to be a horrible feeling. So I don't know. I don't know if there's anything we can really do except acknowledge it, you know, and I try to couch even when I'm asking them to withdraw because they're not going to pass. I couch it in the, you know, mind growth terms. It's like, this is not a failure. This is, this is a just, you're not ready yet, or circumstances are not allowing you to do it yet. You know, do not look at this as a terrible thing. Consider this a wise move that you are aware enough to say, "Mm, this is not going to work out. I'm going to step back. I just love that question, but I, my answer is just a little jumbled because I don't know. I mean, we don't have a place for it, and yet maybe we need a place for it. And more broadly, TJ also is thinking about attending to disconnects in our ethics and our practice. You and I have talked several times about um, how we we both feel that shame is baked in to higher education. And that's a big barrier to, for some people, it's a spur, uh, but for many of us, it it can be a barrier to things. It can you know be a dampener. It can um, really cause a lot of trouble. And oftentimes that's why students don't reach out for help. They feel ashamed that things are going badly. And so they, they hide everything. And of course, we don't get too much out. Do you have any further thoughts about how we could better address that shame that students feel when they're failing? You know, we talked a little bit about being more explicit and understanding that there's a lot of shame, being more explicit and saying that it's it's okay to feel that, it's okay to go through this, it is okay to go recover, right? And it is okay to come back. Uh, you know, just trying to not treat it like it's this minor thing or in the way of, you know, a lot of bureaucracies as just, you know, just a paperwork process when it really is a lot more, there's a lot more going on for the people who are going through it. You know, and, and the stories are so wild and so different and everybody's situation is so different, but I, you know, putting more, which I think we have a lot of at Midland second, um, Every faculty, I can't think of a single full-time faculty member or adjunct that I interact with that doesn't show concern for students and want them to succeed and staff, right? But I don't, and I think that's true at a lot of colleges, most probably. Um, But there's a disconnect between that and the processes, which are very sterile and clinical and just, you know, here's a letter telling you the bad news. Sincerely, you know, whoever signs them, I have no idea. Yeah, it would be nice to have more, more of that human side, which I think you get, you can get a lot of in the classroom. You know, why can't that be there too? 
We are in higher education. A foundational principle of learning is continued deep thought and application. This podcast is meant to be a part of the ethic and the way of being and reinforcing a habit of mind by creating a space for conversation that allows us to dig much more fully into important areas that we may skim over out of habit or busyness. So what have these conversations meant for Centrell as she does her daily work at the college, since such a good portion of it is with students going into or attempting to return from suspension? I wonder, as um, we have talked over these last few months about it, what has that done for your thinking in your work at the college? Has it brought you to new spaces or conclusions or are you noticing things differently? What's changed for you in your work because of these conversations? What's changed for me is being more aware, um, being more aware that students, like you said, not all, but that a lot of students really are in addition to their personal issues, um, that this is also an area where students can feel a significant loss. You know, it's not something that I have thought of for many years because I'm so far removed from it, you know, in my personal experience. But just realizing that, you know, this is something that students are, are really struggling with. And so it it has caused me to even go a little deeper when I'm having those conversations, um, you know, to talk to students about how are you really feeling about this and what support do you need, you know, and realizing that they do need some support. Is there anything else that you'd like to say about loss and grief in higher education? No. Well, I mean, the only thing I can think is I just think that it's wonderful that we are coming together and really having these types of conversations. I think it's much needed. It's a conversation that I have never heard before, <laughs> you know, prior to now. And I, I just think it's awesome um, to know that things are in the works for students in higher ed, um, you know, who are experiencing losses and failure. And I think it's I think it's going to do a world of good. I think it's really going to um, help a lot more students find their way and feel supported as opposed to just feeling like college is not for me. You know, I think that's going to help them really know that they belong and um, that they can be successful. So, you know. I'm just excited about the work that's being done in this area. And when I asked TJ for any final thoughts, he spoke directly to students about what they can keep in mind when they face failure. You know, I think um, just remembering for everybody involved that failure is not just a normal part in higher education, it's part of life. If you're not failing, you're not trying because you cannot succeed 100% of the time. It's not possible. So, um, trying to sh to shift that to to un to appreciating that sometimes when people fail that's just life right and that it's not the end of the story it's just the middle if you failed at something you want to do the story's not over it, you're just in the middle part that's really all it means the end is when you have succeeded and you're not done until you decide that 
What is made possible by appreciating loss and grief caused by failure in our institution? As I said to Centrale, we're just in the making notes towards answers stage. But as you've heard, the more we think and talk about these issues, the more that we begin to better understand and encompass them. Friends, I failed to bring students into this season. My reasons were good. Like many people in higher education, I meant no harm. And this is productive failure, because now we can think about future conversations where I will figure out how to safely and ethically bring in the student voices in this public space. I will do things differently next time. And here's another good question. As we move into the last few episodes of the season, how will I know if this season has been successful or if it's failed? What are my metrics? Good questions. I'll try to answer them in upcoming conversations. Our own failures as educators with our students also have such resonance. I recall in episode five of season three on play, our mechatronics program director, Stan Frost, told the story of how he felt called to be a child psychologist. But the professor who taught that subject at his college was so forbidding, so excluding, that young Stan lost all heart for the work and turned aside to another path. Now, if you know Stan, he loves his work and has enjoyed a vibrant and exciting career that has led him to the college. But that loss was real. That field lost what could have been a brilliant and caring practitioner. We'll never know. And before he found his new path, he was despondent. It's always worth reflecting on our own behavior in teaching and asking regularly whether we are opening the gate wide or standing in front of it. Loss and grief, two certainties of life. They are not absent from education. Thank you for coming along today, since I really think that we're on to some important ideas here at the college. If you'd like to keep talking about these issues, reach out to me at the CTE. My email address is h-o-u-l-e-c at midlandstech.edu. Join us next time for our companion to today's episode. Instead of a story of failure, we'll have a story of grief. It won't be a personal story, although it does conjure personal memories. Instead, we'll talk with English professor Andrea West about a literal short story called The Management of Grief and see what storytelling can offer us as we think about working with grief in an institutional setting, something that can be very tough. But we are an institution, so let's look at it together. Join us next time as the light slowly returns to our part of the world, further into the last month of winter and deeper into the web of our community.